So, Alexander Sager, you're head of the Cybercrime Division. I'm very happy to have you back on the podcast again. Now, the Cybercrime Convention is really one of the most successful international treaties. So why do we need a second protocol? Why do we need an addition? Thank you. Good to be here with you again. Um, the uh, Convention on Cybercrime, the Budapest Convention, was opened for signature 20 years ago, over 20 years ago in November 2001, and uh, has been indeed a huge success and is still a huge success. We have had um, a few weeks ago, uh, Ecuador was invited to, to exceed, and also they had brought their legislation in line first before, becoming, before um, requesting to, ex to be invited to exceed and then to be, ex to be then invited. A few months earlier, we had also Vanuatu and, and Fiji invited to exceed, and they also had brought that domestic legislation in line with the Convention on Cybercrime. So it's a huge success and remains a huge success, the gold standard internationally. Uh, however, certain things have changed over the last 20 years. So while on the one hand, the type of crimes, the, the offenses against and by means of computers are in nature still the same, although different techniques are used. Um, and although the investigative, investigative measures foreseen in, in the Convention on Cybercrime and the measures for international cooperation are still very much applicable, additional tools are needed uh, to investigate cybercrime and obtain electronic evidence in relation to any type of crime. And, and therefore, after years of preparatory work, and four years of, of negotiations, the new protocol was finalized um, a few months ago and it will now be opened for signature uh, in May here in Strasbourg. Tell me, I'm, a little, I'm curious about this. Uh, mm. What made you decide that you needed a new approach? Was there a special moment that happened mm. or did you decide that things were not going quite as you wanted? What was it? What, what made that change? The starting point was about, must have been almost 10 years ago, when the issue of cloud computing came up. You know, namely that you don't necessarily have the information on, on, your, on your personal computer, on your, on your laptop. You, you draw on information that you have stored somewhere on a server, somewhere in the cloud. So if people have a a, a, a Gmail account or a, or a Microsoft account, the information would be stored somewhere. The individual doesn't really care. You don't really care where is your, where is your data. You may not even know where is your data. A Google hopefully knows. If you have a Gmail account or Microsoft, if you, have a, if you have an Outlook or Hotmail account. But the problem is from an investigative point of view, how do you obtain evidence that is somewhere in the cloud? So this is the question that can come up. Law enforcement has clear boundaries. The boundary is the national boundary. You have jurisdiction within your national boundary, within your territory. If you need data that is somewhere else, you have to go to the authorities of the other country. The evidence, however, in relation to a crime may be all over the place. Somewhere in the cloud, as I just explained. Somewhere on a server in a foreign jurisdiction. Sometimes you know where the data is. Sometimes you don't know. Sometimes the data may be in multiple jurisdictions at the same time. Um, sometimes data may be moving between jurisdictions. So we had to find a new way of cooperating. And a particular concept that was, uh, was, was very important is that we focus on service providers. That means service providers that may be in possession or control of the data. 
So one of the innovative features of this new protocol is how to cooperate directly with a service provider that may be in another party in order to obtain evidence. So very often our conventions work government to government, state to state. So mm-hmm. what's special about your convention is it's, it's working with the state, it's working with state authorities, with legal enforcement, with law enforcement, but also then you're reaching out to private companies, to the service providers. So it seems to me that that is something that's quite new in the international legal sphere. Mm. Uh, it's something that we initially called asymmetric cooperation, so not, not only government to government, but government to private sector directly without necessarily involving the foreign government. And that, of course, uh, raises concerns, you know, concerns of, of, of sovereignty. You know, can I allow a foreign law enforcement agency to go directly to a private sector entity, a service provider in my own territory to disclose data, uh, issues of human rights? Can the service provider then disclose directly data that may be personal data in my jurisdiction that may have an interfe- maybe an interference with the rights of individuals in my territory? So many questions and concerns came up, but it was also clear we need more efficient way of efficient ways of obtaining electronic evidence, including through direct cooperation with private sector entities. But we have to back that up with a strong system of safeguards to make sure that the rights of the individuals are protected at the same time. And this difficult formula, we found a solution to that, and this is now in this new protocol. Can you tell me something about the challenges? How does that pan out? How does it work for an end user if there's all these problems? What kind of cybercrime are we talking about? Is this denial of service attacks? Is it, mm-hmm. is it, is it the classic cybercrime of somebody being defrauded via the internet? When we're talking about the second protocol, what is it that's actually at stake? Can you give me some examples? It is cybercrime, meaning attacks against, uh, against personal computers, interference uh, with, with your data, um, theft of your data, it may be child abuse, online child abuse um, uh, materials. Uh, it may be attacks against critical infrastructure, which may affect the functioning of, of a hospital, of an airport. It may include ransomware attacks when hospital services are shut down, cannot deliver their services, people may die because the computers in the hospital are shut down. It may involve interference with elections, uh, in election computers, uh, for example. Um, and so forth. But, but nowadays, it may involve even more. Uh, it may even involve collecting evidence of war crimes in, 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 uh, in what we have here currently in, in Europe, where a lot of the evidence of war crimes, of atrocities committed, is electronic evidence, where you have to check, is this image, is this imagery, these videos, whatever, are these, are these genuine uh, or not, and so forth. So it may involve anything. So we talk about cybercrime, as I said before, offenses against uh, by uh, offenses against computers and offenses uh, by means of computers. But we talk also about evidence on a computer system in relation to any crime, and that makes it very broad. The scope of application is extremely broad in that sense. So this is not just about crime. This is really touching everybody's lives. And it seems to me that if suddenly there's a problem happens, suddenly some hospital has its computer system go down, or we're trying to investigate war crimes, that needs to happen really quickly. 
Yet, if, as you say, their servers are in different countries, uh, it's being broadcast internationally, or, 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 or there's other problems, how can that happen quickly? Is that how the second protocol helps? Well, clearly, if we look back again at this problem of territoriality in jurisdiction, you know, we, as I said before, uh, law enforcement authorities, their boundary is the national boundary. Within that, they can investigate. If they go beyond, traditionally, they would have to go via the authorities of another country. That is a problem. So now we have multiple ways of enhancing the efficiency of such access to data and disclosure of data. That's why the protocol, by the way, is called Enhanced Cooperation and Disclosure of Electronic Evidence. That's the title of the protocol. Enhanced, not enhanced international cooperation, because it's also public-private with individuals, so not between states. That's why we said, let's not call it international, but, but cooperation in, in more general terms. So now the means are direct cooperation with the service provider to find out who did it, who sent the email attack, from what computer has this attack been carried out to basically attribute a crime or an attack by going directly to service providers. This is one way of enhancing the efficiency, and not necessarily via the other authorities. A second set of provisions in this protocol has to do with emergency situations where lives are at risk, uh, where we have also the possibility now for emergency mutual assistance, that is government to government in the traditional sense, but where the response will come quickly. You don't have to wait for six months or much more. You can get the, the, the evidence from the other country, in a, hopefully in, immediately, but there's still some procedures involved. And the second one, which is um, the urgent disclosure of evidence in emergency situations where if you send a request to the other country via the 24-7 network of contact points, where then in the other country they will take all means they can do nationally in order to give you the evidence uh, within within hours, hopefully, and not within within weeks or even months. So these are also means we have introduced in this protocol. So in short, efficiency through direct cooperation with service providers, but also efficiency for expedited disclosure of evidence in emergency situations. What's interesting for me when we talk about timing is that you say it's taken four years to get to this point of it being ready. So why so long? The main reason was that we need to back up, that we need to complement efficiency with safeguards. We had to limit the, the type of data you can disclose because if you go directly to a service provider, now they, even under the protocol, they cannot disclose all types of data. They cannot disclose, for example, content data or, um, or, or traffic data because that's considered more sensitive. So the compromise we found, yes, we can go directly to a provider, but it's limited to subscriber information. So this is one way of, of um, ensuring that we find the right balance between efficiency and rights. So we say by not making all data available through such disclosure, but only subscriber information, we find a good balance here. A second, um, there are a number of other safeguards built in, but a very important one and very difficult to negotiate was data protection. Uh, we know that uh, there are very strong data protection rules within the European Union. There are, the Council of Europe also has um, very strict data protection conventions, Convention 108+. plus. 
uh, which not only covers member states of the Council of Europe, but is also open for other states. But then other states in other regions may have a different type different types of protections when it comes to privacy and personal data. So we had to find a way that we can to, to construct um, um, an article on the protection of personal data that takes into account all of this, that works in all systems around the world and um, that also works and will stand hopefully the, the test uh, in case there are challenges in front of the European Court of Human Rights or the, the, the Court of Justice of the European Union or other courts for that matter. And we must have spent about 45, 40 or 45 sessions only discussing data protection. And who was doing that then? Are these experts from outside? Are they from private companies? Are they from governments? We had some 620 experts from governments participating in these, uh, in, these, in these meetings, not in all of them, but in, 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 in total we have an inventory of over 600 people that participated in the 91 negotiating sessions. And from 75 states, including 66 parties to the Budapest Convention, but we also had six rounds of consultations with private sector, with civil society, with data protection experts uh, to come to this agreement. It was a complex process, sometimes difficult, on a few occasions about to fail. But the, in, in the end, we, we, we made it. You got there. You got there. So the protocol is now ready. It's due to be launched. How quickly can governments get it in place? How quickly is this going to work? The procedure is it will be open for signature. And after the opening for signature, countries have to ratify it. And once I think we have five ratifications, then it enters into force for the first five countries and so forth. So then hopefully we will have um, more countries uh, then also joining and, and ratifying quickly. It's unpredictable how long that will take. We hope that there is sufficient incentive to ratify this protocol quickly. Let's face it, some of these means of cooperation already take place. We had the Charlie Hebdo situation some years ago where countries could see how it works, where during a terrorist attack, the French authority needed the data very quickly from accounts held by Microsoft in the US, and Microsoft was allowed to disclose because of provisions in US laws. So you have an emergency situation, it's been verified that it is such a situation, and then within, within a few hours, the, the necessary even content from Microsoft accounts could be disclosed to the French authorities. So people know what is at stake and how this can work in practice. And this is one of the articles of the protocol. So there's an incentive to have this in place for others. And the direct cooperation with service providers for subscriber information, information about who is the owner of a, of a social media account, of a of a, of a webmail account and so on. That is already taking place where US, United States service provider disclose such data in two-thirds of, of, of requests they respond. But everyone knows it's on very shaky grounds. So at any time, there may be core decisions to say, this is not on, you cannot disclose such data unless you have a clear legal basis. The protocol provides that legal basis. And therefore, we hope that uh, it's in the interest of service providers, in the interest of, of, of criminal justice authorities, 
that this protocol is quickly in place to not be on such a shaky ground from a rule of law, a human rights data protection uh, perspective, and to have to be on the safe ground uh, through this protocol. So we hope that there will be sufficient incentives to um, implement and, and ratify this protocol quickly. So it sounds to me like the support is there, and I wish you every success with it. What's interesting, though, is to think, well, 20 years of the Cybercrime Convention, so much change in our world, so much change in the way mm. that we deal with information, technology. And how do you think it's going to pan out in the future? Do you think you'll be at a stage where you would have to have a third protocol? What we hope we can also do is what we have done during this last uh, 10, 12 years, that we can provide guidance in other ways, through guidance notes, you know, to explain how certain provisions of the Budapest Convention, of the first protocol on xenophobia and racism, or of the second protocol now on enhanced cooperation and disclosure of electronic evidence, how they can be applied to new um, phenomena. You know, for example, there is the, is the story of deepfakes, you know, and um, when I looked the other day at Article 7 of the, of the Budapest Convention about computer-related forgery, a conduct is already described there. So you would not need now a new protocol to criminalize deepfakes or what goes with it. Uh, so Article 7 and also Article 8 of, of the, um, on, on computer-related fraud of the Budapest Convention are already there. So... I think a lot in that respect could be done through guidance, through capacity building, without necessarily spending a few more years now negotiating a new protocol on, on deepfakes and, um, and then more years on, on ratification. So developing a new international instrument in the, th in the sense of a third protocol or, or whatever it, it would take is not always uh, needed. So it sounds like you've got the means. It's a matter of adapting them to new realities. So, well, this sounds like an excellent new step forward for you. Uh, we wish you a lot of luck, Alexander Sager, with your team in making sure that we're safe from cybercrime and uh, bringing all those countries together. Good luck with that all. Thank you. Thank you.